Hello, my name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc at Stephen Smith's lab of the Molecular and Cellular Physiology Department here at Stanford, and welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. This week's guest is Yishi Jin, a professor of neurobiology at the University of California at San Diego. Thanks for joining us today, Professor Jin. Well, glad to be here, and uh, glad you're doing this. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It's, uh, yeah, making me think that our graduate program, we're running a neuroscience graduate program seminar series. We probably should think about the same thing. Yeah, well, I've, I've heard that Harvard is doing something similar as well, uh, completely independently, so it, it might be a, a growing idea. Yes. So uh, your HHMI investigator profile states that you grew up in China during the Cultural Revolution, which saw the complete shutdown of scientific research and study. Uh, and you began studying biology at Peking University four years after the end of the revolution. Uh, could you talk about uh, what that was like and, and how that uh, affected your thinking about your scientific career? Long question. It's a complicated history. And if a simple catch was, I um, say, at the time when the Cultural Revolution ends, it, there's the country, all the young people really just wanted to study. It's a rare opportunity that finally opened to all of us. That's, um, so we're all very excited. There's funding good teacher who can get us actually good textbook. You know, this one thing during the Cultural Revolution, there wasn't any textbook. Hmm. There wasn't any problem sets. We were just basically looking for anything, sometimes broken pages of questions, so we could work on them. Hmm. And then it's a very exciting time. It's the most, as it's the learning time I felt that, that I treasured the most in my life. Really? Yeah. Huh. It's, you know, it just says that there were no books. Um, Apart from the political propaganda books around, there's no real literature books for you to basically read it freely. Mm -hmm. So all, it's so every bit of knowledge that you picked up had a sort of special. Yeah, it's suddenly open. So therefore, we could read, and then the matter of fact is that we need to find all those um, books around, and that's been you know one of the things during the Cultural Revolution is that some of those really good textbooks got burned. Mm -hmm. There were no copies left. And so a lot of time I learned in high school, like even um, algebra, and the questions given to me is actually handwritten by my high school teacher. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like almost rather than uh, dissuading you from pursuing a career in science, it maybe was part of what spurred you. you know, to... I, I jumped into it, right? Because yeah. uh, the cultural revolution was the one reason I say pushed me into science because it just told me the politics was so ugly. Mm -hmm. And um, whereas the science is so pure and it's so much truth in it. And what pushed me into biology is actually I had a, a biology high school teacher. So biology wasn't a mandatory um, course for, bio for high schools or elementary school. But happened that my school had this um, biology teacher and she actually came from, uh, I think she was came from Singapore returning as um, returning Chinese. So she had this opportunity to start teaching biology. And I just thought um, both her accent, you know, her Chinese wasn't super um, local. And plus the way that she's very animated just made the trees like talking to me. <laughs> and so that was the reason I said biology is the most fascinating. And But at the time, there were also push about, you know, if you're very talented or good at the grades, you're supposed to study physics or math. Right. And I sort of got completely um, fascinated into this live aspect of science. Mm -hmm. 
without actually knowing much of it, what the sounds or anything, but just that passion from my teacher. Do you remember any particular things that you were super interested in back then? Yeah, I mean, in a lot of cases, basically, she was talking about photosynthesis mm -hmm. process, right? And then she was telling you how the green leaves and then all the whites, the chloroplast, and how to purify the chloroplast. They suddenly you see those kind of things. You say, ah, this is all made sense because before I just see them as a tree. Right, right. And, um, you know, she explained that. That was all completely new to me. Yeah. That's got me into biology. So you eventually went to came to the United States to do uh, your graduate work, and you joined the lab of Katherine Anderson at UC Berkeley, where you studied the molecular mechanisms of embryonic dorsal ventral patterning uh, in the fruit fly. Uh, and I was wondering whether you could talk a little bit about if there are any unifying principles between uh, the process of, of, of forming an axis in the, in the embryo and the, and the way in which neurons also have to orient themselves uh, in biology. Yeah, so um, while I um, went in to study the dorsal ventral pattern formation at the time, actually, um, I wasn't a neurobiologist. I actually never took a neurobiology <laughs> in my whole life. And was really fascinated about um, the development, basically looking at the tissue cell movement changes. And through that process, basically, I learned um, how to use genetics to interpret the signal transduction pathways to interpret the gene function. Um, I would say we when as a student, I didn't actually see clearly there were much of a connection between, you know, the body and the um, polarity versus neuronal polarity. But I was very fascinated about the fact you can use uh, genetics to perturb specific aspects of a cell in regard of whether it's neurons or muscles or anything. So um, Perhaps going back to your question is that the neuronal asymmetry, the polarity, um, slightly different from the dorsal ventral pattern formation. But what is driven that's common, the idea is that there's a gradient. So in the embryonic pattern formation, what's driving is that there's a gradient that sets dorsal different from ventral, anterior different from posterior. Whereas in the neurons, is neurons become polarized because they have the ability to sense different attractants, mm -hmm. right? So that becomes a polarized process. I think fundamental that aspect of it, I see the similarity. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the um, actual, you know, drosophila pattern formation, those cues, um, not many of them directly implicated in uh, neuronal polarity because they're all extracellular cues. Right, right. There's you know, later on is the studies from C. elegans when they start working on single cell, when they're looking at how cells divide, which generate those par genes, right? Those par genes then become highly conserved with the neuronal polarity determination because somewhat is driven by um, spindle formation and the position eventually make polarity. Hmm, right. So in, in 2004, your lab, in collaboration with the lab of Adela Ben-Yakar, uh, described a technique where you used uh, a femtosecond laser to sever single axons in worms uh, and demonstrated that these axons were destroyed, but yet uh, some of the worms eventually recovered motor function. Um, and it reminds me uh, of a story I heard from David Kleinfeld of UCSD where he, uh, he sort of noticed that when they accidentally parked their two-photon scope on a, on a blood vessel, they could get a sort of mini stroke, and they eventually converted that into a into a way to study strokes. Um, and so I was wondering whether this discovery might have been similarly accidental, or or what the genesis 
of these experiments were? It's definitely accidental. And um, it's actually the driving force of this whole collaboration is um, the student at the time is Fatih Yangne mm -hmm. at Stanford um, Applied the Physics Department. So he really was working on basically working under Adawa and to learn about this ultra fast thumb per second laser. And um, then he ran into one of my former postdocs and in a social gathering. So he says, oh, so I have this really fast laser and I can cut glass. Apparently it can be very precise to cut even mitochondria. Do you think there's any use? Whereas my postdoc has been working on the single axon uh, development, mm -hmm. essentially using C elegance, you can visualize single axons. So yeah, why don't we just try to cut them? And that's how this started. Huh. So was it known uh, before that, that axons could regenerate? I Forgive me for my ignorance of the literature. Um, no, not in C. elegans. Mm -hmm. So essentially the studies of um, axon regeneration has always been done, at least you have a mechanic contrusion, a ways of mechanics serving the axon, right? Yeah. C. elegans is so small. And um, if you use a scalpel or sharp needle, you basically rip the animal open. Yeah. They die. And, yeah, right. Yeah. So, um, but on the other hand, um, using laser as a way to to kill cells, and that's been long known since the start of John Salston's very um, groundbreaking work. That is ablating cells with laser. Essentially, that idea is that use laser to heat up the nucleus. Eventually, they burst open. Mm -hmm. So those methods has been around for a long time. Um, but looking at essentially the axons, the diameter is so small, right? So it's only about one micron that you could see, and then use a GFP to label them. That's what you see. And some people actually calculated for the traditional type of laser that just somehow the physical force will not be able to precisely um, target on the axon. And so what this ultra-fast femtosecond laser might be the first case is that because so precise it doesn't generate it doesn't break cell or membranes by heat it's basically mm. due to ionization i see so that's why it worked worked beautifully and after it worked and then perhaps what got us all excited is that then we found the axons do regenerate yeah yeah it's a regenerating in a way is actually very imprecise Oh, could you explain a little bit more what you mean by that? Meaning is that we would have anticipated, you know, in C. elegans, they don't live long. And there's naturally, they shouldn't need it to repair the axon, which is different from human. We damage ourselves and we live for long. And that's why we wanted the ability to right. repair our um, damaged axon. C. elegans only lives for three days. Okay. The natural environment to break their axon pretty rare to chance yeah. I don't know it's a chance so to think about why they needed to respond to this kind of injury damage even laser trigger is rather kind of philosophical question to think about it but instead they do respond and respond very robustly so you can see gross cones and you can realize an extension so so what happens if you 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 have you have the the whole axon and then you remove a segment of it do the two halves reconnect or does the half that was severed away from the cell body disintegrate and the axon you know grow out both can happen but majority um response is actually the proximal side meaning the side of connected soma will start sprouting 
they sprout randomly. They completely ignore their original paths. Hmm. Okay, so whereas the distal part, because no longer attached to soma, they can die mm -hmm. eventually. And by chance, somehow they meet and they fuse. Gotcha. Hmm. So it's very random. Do we do we know whether that does or doesn't? Is does that? I mean, you really can study a single axon and, and with a lot more precision in a worm maybe than anybody else has been able to study in a higher organism. But does that general process? Do we think that reflects the way that uh, humans or, or higher mammals? I, I absolutely uh, convinced by that. So we did a lot of experiments, including calcium imaging, including identify signaling molecules. Everything we have found largely are conserved from C. elegans and to, hum to mouse, not mm -hmm. human yet. And um, some of our studies have also been observed um, in parallel um, model organisms that fly. And um, what's what I wanted to go back is that why we get excited when we see this robust um, regenerative response, but imprecise growth, is in some ways reminded us is that in mammals, right, in human, the axons do sprout, but they're now able to repair themselves because they just wander around. Mm. And this is a very different from development because development axons all follow very precise paths. And whereas in repair condition, they don't, they don't know the cue or they don't recognize there's inhibitory factors in the environment or they lost the ability to recognize the cue. Hmm. And considering the elegance is that they don't have the need to repair themselves, but they show exactly similar type of cellular response. Yeah. It's robust response, but imprecise. So you've hinted at it, but what are the, some of the things that you've been able to use this system to learn about the molecular mechanisms of this? Of this process, at least in, in some broad yeah, overview. So um, we found that first of all, um, laser injury will trigger calcium spike, mm -hmm. and that's been recently confirmed. Actually, been observed in many cases in other organisms, including um, the uh, ablaceous and crayfish studies, and we're able to get identify that um, what's mediating this spiking that's involving intracellular stores and um, voltage-gated calcium channel. And particularly, we identified this kinase that essentially is completely conserved from C. elegans um, to human, um, that is absolutely essential for generating this um, regenerative response. Hmm. So, the, so the, the sort of normal, the, I mean, the, the, the spiking that you usually associate with a, the death of the cell when you've uh, messed up your whole cell patch is actually a critical signal yes. necessary to cause the axon to start sprouting. Right, so the most recent work we're able to link this calcium spiking with activation of this kinase. Mm. There's a clear mechanism, essentially, the calcium controls how the kinase can be locally activated. Yeah. And we also did a very um, entertaining experiment. That essentially, <laughs> we put the vertebrate uh, homolog genes into C. elegans. We can show they can functionally um, complement the C. elegans gene. Oh, I see. So you take the take the C. elegans gene out, and the human gene works just just the same, just fine, as long as it's got the calcium, then it will That's right. do its job. Hmm. Yeah. So it, it kind of uh, that really opens up a, a whole set of ideas about how you might continue to signal axons to regenerate, maybe when this this transient uh, calcium stimulus would normally go away. Yes, yeah, so we, we believe this mechanism will be very general, and we think that. 
in the mouse case, it's just a lot more complexity from the environment, glias and microglias and other vascular damages that created a additional obstacle hmm. for exome regenerate. Well, as you mentioned, your lab studies a, a lot of things, but I seem to be interested in uh, the creative ways that you come up with to destroy things. Uh, so <laughs> I wanted to ask you about the your more recent paper in which you described a method uh, in collaboration with Roger Chen's group um, for light-inducible and tissue-selective cell ablation using the genetically encoded uh, fluorescent protein Minisog, which is uh, which was originally developed to, for correlative uh, light EM microscopy, but you have found a new and interesting use for it. Could you describe uh, that in a little more detail and what kinds of experiments you, you think that this will be useful for? Yeah, so uh, this is again another accidental discovery, right? We were collaborating with Roger and um, Roger Chen's and Mark Ellison's group and then was thinking about looking at EM tag. And because transgenic labelings, yellow gains is very simple, straightforward. Um, and then as we're doing it, we suddenly realize, hey, our animals look behaviorally, look abnormal. And then we says, why? We went in to look actually the neurons. You, you said abnormal, right? Abnormal. The, abnormal. the animals basically behaves as so-called, the worm will say, is uncoordinated. Mm -hmm. We express many cells intact with mitochondria. And we find those animals that suddenly they don't look sinusoidal. And say, so what's wrong with them? We put them on the scope and we look at it. Oh, those neurons disappeared. <laughs> so that gave us the idea. It says, well, makes sense, right? So mitochondria is essential for um, so many processes. And we're putting a single oxygen generator that's very potent. Presumably, um, it causes toxicity and then kill the cell. But it did take us a little bit while to figure out, you know, making different molecular constructs so that it can be very efficient to kill. Mm -hmm. So what's the advantage of it is now we have a controlled ways to kill. That is any, you know, in most cases, cell ablation was done, as it says in old days, traditional way is use laser to heat the nucleus and you kill them. And then therefore it requires intense anatomical skills. Um, or you can also express toxic molecules such as caspases. And if you do that, you will need um, promoters to drive specific expression. And there are some consequences is that you kill the cells, usually kill precursors, but not the cells when they're already fully functional. So just to be clear, so people understand, I, I think it's, it, it wasn't, the worm wasn't uncoordinated until you shined the light on it. It wasn't just that Minisog produces singlet oxygen, but that it does so specifically when you put light on it, that was causing the worm to become uncoordinated. That's right. right. That's right. Yeah. 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 And um, so that's when we noticed as well, you know, the we kept some of the worm um, live after shining photo because we need to make sure and they see them die. And we used some others basically um, for the EM examination. Hmm. Um, so now essentially what we have a way is that we can kill any cells at any stage dynamically and particularly I can consider uh, the studies in, um, related to exome regeneration to kill neurons at adults and to kill neurons in fact in aging animals hmm. and those, those kind of experiments has never been done. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, so for several years, you were the co-director for the Woods Hole uh, Neurobiology course, which is where I first uh, met you, uh, TAing the course for Stephen. 
could you tell me uh, how you became involved in the course and perhaps share a story about how teaching the Woods Hole course has affected your own research? Um, I think I got involved in this course also because former course um, instructors generally will look for new people um, to teach the course. And I have taught courses in Coastal Harbor Worm course. So um, I think somehow I'm in the worm field, I have a reputation like to teach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's actually the time I was at University of California, Santa Cruz, not far from me. And part of the reason I chose my first career is because I said I wanted to teach. Um, and had opened a lab course at UC Santa Cruz, essentially it's a neurogenetics lab course. So I was very happy. They asked me, do you want it to come to teach? And I said, sure. And once I got there, you know, this whole just transformed me. It is a place I love and there's so many colleagues and um, you can assemble so many um, top rate um, equipment and test any kind of idea just to get over the feeling is that I know what it is and um, I will learn how to use it if I needed to. Mm-hmm. So that's the reason um, got me bounded with this hope. So later on, they asked me whether I wanted to direct the course, and I said, sure. <laughs> um, so um, in terms of experiment-wise, I think my personally, actually the experiments that we really did was made the laser, a femtosecond laser, um, exultantly more useful and actually broadly, because the reason is that initially we thought our laser exultantly has to use a femtosecond laser. Mm-hmm. But when we moved over, when we started the, uh, the first year at Woods Hole, we wanted to use this project and to teach students. And they said, well, we don't really have those fancy ultra-fast femtosecond laser. And one of the person said, well, isn't this just the same as a two-photon laser? <laughs> right? Right, yeah. And I said, oh, well, this tells you how much I know about it. <laughs> Said, oh, that sounds right. So one of the students, two of the students, just says, "Okay, let's just go over to um, Lily's and then use those um, two photon microscope and then see if we can cut them." Yeah, so turn on the line scan and see what happens. Yes, they did the experiments and they worked. Yeah, yeah. And so after that, we came back and developed more ideas. Essentially, using any type of laser, we can now cut um, the axon. And so now that using both traditional laser and um, confocal laser, two photon, just anything that many of the Seattle's lab has used this technology to set up an exon regeneration study. And so is the fly people. So fly people actually don't use this ultra-fast laser. They just use a standard laser. One experiment. And then there's some other ideas I can keep going. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. I mean, it's a place that ideas just kind of flourish, so. Um, well, in closing, uh, or the, my last sort of longer form question, could you give us a preview of what you plan to talk about when you come to Stanford? Uh, so initially, I thought it was just going to focus on the axon regeneration. But your question about the mini cell got me thinking about I <laughs> talk about it, too. Uh-huh. Uh, so I think uh, both aspects of it is how to um, how the technology in various ways that's led me to combine with the C. evidence genetics and to explore new areas of cell biology and um, to discover the signalings, primarily focus on the kinase cascade that we have um, been focused on the, for its role in axon regeneration. And um, I will try to touch up on 
a few new usage of minisalt, more than just killing cells. <laughs> okay, cool. Cool. And in, and in closing, we like to do this series of sort of faster, uh, short-form questions. Um, if you could speak to yourself as a graduate student, what advice uh, would you give yourself? Um, really, don't limit yourself by reasoning and just get down to the bench and get work, get data, and get the optimization that's yours. Don't follow textbook. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, if you could spend a day hanging out with uh, Ramoni Cajal, what would you do? Um, I would want to spend eight hours with him in front of the microscope and ask him, point to me all the specific structures and what particularly that he could see and I don't. <laughs> um, and if you could have any other job in the world, what would you what would you choose? Um, ideally, I wanted to fly, be a pilot, <laughs> so I can see lots, lots of things. Yeah, that's a great answer. Um, well, thank you for speaking with us today, Dr. Jin. Well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity, and I will look forward to seeing you in Stanford. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and thank you all for listening. We'll hope you join us next week when our guest will be Zhao Wei Zhang, a professor of chemistry and physics at Harvard University. NeuroTalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Signor, Mark Padalina, and myself. For more information about NeuroTalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.stanford.edu group slash neurite-west, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.